Anyone else wants one last chance to run out? <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> I, see, <laughs> I saw an elder about to get up back there. That's not cool. That's not cool. Thank you, Greg and company, for leading us. We serve an awesome God, right? Yeah, who has created so much joy for us to live in a life of fullness that we can enjoy time together and worship and, and laughter and also to comfort one another in the middle of the times that are not full of laughter and joy. And so we, we share that with you wherever you are in the journey right now. Um, we want to be walking with you. Uh, we found, you found yourself here in part four of a nine-part series that we're doing um, called Refocus, Refresh, Refuel, and um, hoping that this will end up showing up up here at some point along the way. There we go. Let me know if that gets up there. All right, we'll, we'll see what happens. If it doesn't, we're going to roll with it anyway. Um, this series is really about um, us trying to refocus our energy and our focus as a people on what the church is about. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning because this morning I believe that no matter where you find yourself, if you're a child, right, if you're, uh, if you're in uh, middle school, high school, young adult area, if you are married, getting married, if you're in the middle of life, which is a lot of years, okay, and uh, if you're in the sunset years, I don't care, wherever you find yourself, I believe what we're going to talk about this morning is going to be so helpful for you in terms of both how you see a relationship with God and where you find yourself in influencing other people around you right now. So I'm really excited that you're here, and I hope it'll be meaningful for you, okay? We began this series um, talking about the mission of the church and saying essentially that the mission of any organization, of any people, can shift pretty easily over time and can drift easily over time. We can move from one to the other in a hurry without any um, almost thought or struggle at all. And we talked about the mission of our church needing to keep coming back to that and anchor to that, that we are in the business, if you will, okay, of developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That language is important to us. That focus is important to us. This is what we do. Then we ask the question, if that's what we do, okay, what does it look like to do that? What is the vision of the church? And that's in week two where we talked about being present in the town square by relentlessly pursuing the social, spiritual, and cultural good. I want you to get a picture of a town square. I want you to, in that picture of a town square, imagine the church in the center of that town square, impacting and affecting the social, spiritual, and cultural good of the community to which it's been called. The church should not be on the third street down on the left, three more rows over, and somewhere down back tucked in the corner. I want you to have the picture, the vision of the church being central in the town square, being a part of and engaging, if not creating the town square, and leading in our community in the social, spiritual, and cultural good while we are developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in week three, we also talked about what it would feel like, and that's where we kind of turn the corner to what will it feel like to go on this journey. And I use the image of going on a road trip in the car uh, with some children, perhaps. And if you've ever been a child and been on a road trip, you know some road trips are better than others. And what does it feel like? What kind of mood are mom and dad in? And how long until the next stop? And if you ask one more time, how much longer? It doesn't change how much longer. We'll get there when we get there. Okay, what does it feel like, okay, on the journey to get there, okay? And that's a question, and that becomes a values question of what does it feel like. And here at GPC, our leading value we talked about with one another is we want to, with one another, live fearlessly, speak openly, forgive generously. Talk about how we relate to one another. Difficult concepts to get around, but good 
stuff. Okay. Now, today, we're going to enter into a core value number two and talk about this in, in a moment. Now, to get around that, I'd like you to do something with me, okay? Are we up for a little participation this morning? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> there we go. All right. So don't worry. No one has to get up or do anything crazy. But I want you now to picture in your mind, I want you to have the name and the face of somebody in your mind um, who you would say is a great leader or influencer for you. Someone that you know personally, okay? Not just someone who is a, a star of some kind, you know, whether that's in the athletic or entertainment or business industry or whatever, but someone who you know personally has been a great influencer or leader in your life, okay? When you have a name and, um, and, a, and a face to that person, which should come pretty easily once you have the name, of course, okay? You got that? Just do a little head nod. We're going easy. You got that? Yes. How many do not have anyone they've ever heard of? Okay. We, yeah. We do a head nod? Head nod? Okay. okay. Perfect. All right. Now, here, let me do this. For how many of you is that a parent? Okay. By the way, from up here, here's what that looks like. <laughs> so let's go with this a little bit. That would help me. Okay. How many of you all are a parent? We got a parent? Good. Okay. Good. How about for some of you all, well, a coach? Coach. Anybody in the coach world? All right. How about a teacher? All right. How about a boss? All right. How about uh, a spouse? Jen and spouse? <laughs> Thank you. All right. Appreciate that support. All right. Just kind of made that one up. All right. So here's what I think is true for all of us. No matter who that person is for you, here's what I think is true. The reason that they're in your mind is because somewhere along the line, they thought about you. Right? Like they thought about you and what you need. And sometimes you didn't think that what they thought was helpful. Sometimes you're like, I didn't think that that teacher or coach or boss really had my best interest in mind. But then you're like, yeah, they did. Somewhere along the line, they stopped all that they were doing and thought about you. Now, we're not talking about a uh, famous athlete, actor, whatever. We're talking about people that you know who you've been influenced by. The reason that's unique, the reason that they stand out to you, and there's more reasons than that, and I get that, but the reason that is unique is because most of us don't do that, do we? Because life is so full of caring for the things that we have to care for. The reason that stands out is because unselfish living always stands out. And here's what theologians know about the human race, and here's what you know about the human race, if you know any humans, is that we are innately prideful and innately selfish. And theologians will call that the depravity of man, the, the kind of wiring of man that has been impacted from the fall. God hasn't wired this in, but we are born into this world in which we have a sin nature. And our desire from the little, littlest little baby all the way up is going to always be, how can I get ahead? And we see this in nursery care all the time. That kid has my toy. 
all of a sudden I'm interested in what you have. And there's only so much to go around, and so I need to get what I need to get. There's only so many places where you can go to school, and there's you know, only maybe 150, 300, 500 openings for that position. We have thousands of people applying, so I'm going to go over you to get that position. There's only so much money to go around. I'm going to go for that because I need to. I need to. I need to. And over time, when people stop the selfish living and begin to care about you, it stands out. And here at GPC, we want to talk about creating a culture in which we're relating to people around us in our community and around the world in which we're kind of crossing or rewiring how we think about one another. About creating a place where we, where we are continually asking one key question. And this entire message is driving down to one key question that will help us begin to rewire how we live and how we think with one another and around the world. Now, to get there, I want to go with you to a passage in the Scriptures, to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn uh, there uh, with me. Um, the, Matthew is the first book in what we call the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of your way into your Bible. Uh, Matthew is a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, and uh, wrote this letter um, with an intent to essentially tell the story of, of Jesus' walk um, during his time on earth. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, that Bible that you're holding, if you grabbed one in our pew there, that's our gift to you today. Feel free to take that and run with it and um, enjoy the life of God in the pages there in Matthew and, and throughout. All right, so Matthew chapter 20, and I want to begin in verse 17 for some context, and then we're going to roll from there, okay? Uh, Matthew 20, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he'll be raised to life. Pause it. That, the way I read it, sounds kind of clinical. Now here's, I want you to imagine, you've got to get into this story. So here we go. You're, you're traveling along with Jesus, and you're going to Jerusalem with him, and on the way, you're walking along, and he says, hey, pit stop, hey, take a little break here, guys, let's sit down, and the 12 of you gather around Jesus, and he says, hey, just so you know, when we get there, um, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and to the rulers, to be flogged, to be mocked, to be crucified. Then three days later, I'll rise again. Any questions? Good. Because here we go. Now, you have to think, what would be going on in your mind? Think about that. Think about someone who is a great influence on you, someone who is a great leader in your life. Someone, in, for these disciples, they believed, at least in small part, even just in a, a little bit of understanding, thought was the Messiah. And here he pulls them aside, and he's like, listen, here's how it's going to go down. Now, we know that they still don't get it, which is shocking to me, but yet true. They still don't get it. But he pulls them aside and says, listen, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be turned over. And I'm going to be condemned to death. 
Now that isn't exactly what I expect when I'm going to Jerusalem with Jesus. So I begin to think, well, what would I do next? Like, what kind of mood does that set? That kind of sets a pretty, I mean, that kind of sets a pretty somber mood. Now, in my English Bible, there's an exclamation mark at the end of, and then we'll rise to be raised to life at the end of verse 19. Um, those are the, the translators trying to carry the tone or the spirit of the Greek text. There weren't those exclamation marks in, in the Greek. But the idea is, and then we'll be raised to life. Like, I don't know if I would be drawn out of that that quickly. Like, wait, 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 can you back up to the you're going to die part? Can we talk about that first? Can we talk about you're condemned and flogged and tortured? Like, I know what that's like. Can we talk about that? And then what, you're coming back to life? I didn't even know. I mean, I knew we were going to Jerusalem, but for that, I, hold on. And here's what happens next. And this is so, so amazing. Have you ever been in a situation where someone just did not get it? Where someone just did not understand what was happening? Someone just completely missed the mood of, of the, the moment. You ever been there? Ever happened? No, okay, I'm not going to ask you to point out who has been there around you. Okay, I thought about that, but that might be a little too personal. Check out what happens next. This is kind of stunning to me. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, this would be James and John, all right, came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneeling down, asked the favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. Now, have you ever heard of helicopter parenting? All right, here we go. This is some of the original stuff going on here. Mom of James and John coming down to Jesus. He's just like, hey, I'm going to be, all right, flogged, crucified, and all that. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. How fitting is that? What an appropriate thing to ask, right, in this moment. I mean, isn't this just the right thing to say? I mean, hey, Jesus, I heard about the whole flogging and crucifying and being condemned to death kind of thing. I mean, that's great, but you're going to be come back to life. So, hey, let's talk about that. When you come back to life, can you have these two guys, my, my sons, can they sit one on your right and one on your left? It just misses the it just misses the point. It's so stunning to me. In, in Mark's gospel, he records a similar account, and in there it just says James and John were the one coming to Jesus. And the point is essentially that James and John were behind this, and maybe they decided to manipulate Mom into coming because maybe Mom would pull on the heartstrings of Jesus more. I don't know, but either way, you have James and John present while Mom is kind of put forward, kneeling down. Hey, Jesus. Yeah, I heard all the crucifying. Yeah, I know that's not going to be fun. Flogging, yeah, I get that. Okay, but hey, when that's over, all right, and that exclamation mark, you rise again. All right, let's talk about that. Can these two guys sit next to you in your kingdom? You want to talk about selfish living. You want to talk about people who are thinking of themselves in the worst possible moment. And here's a principle for you. To remember, fear drives selfish living. Okay? Fear drives selfish living. In this moment, all of a sudden, the leader that I'm following, Jesus, has said, I'm going to be crucified. And all of a sudden, that ups the ante. I mean, everything changes in that moment. Wait, you mean no longer, we're not talking unicorns and rainbows and all kinds of good future hope, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. Like, what do you... No, everything is going to change. And all of a sudden, the future is different. And I'm afraid of what might be. And I, there's going to be a kingdom, but I don't know what that is. So here's my moment. I'm going to step into my moment now. There's only going to be one spot here and one spot there. And for me, the time is right for me to ask, Hey, Jesus, 
I'm not going to ask myself. I'm going to have my mom ask, can we sit on your right and on your left? Like, here's the time. Because fear drives selfish living. This past weekend, we celebrated my wife's 20th birthday. (laughs) Did that kind of make up for the other thing that I did earlier? Okay. (laughs) So we had family and, and, uh, you know, party for, for Jen for the surprise 40th birthday party. Okay. Was I allowed to say that publicly? I don't know. Anyway. We had, we had a good time, and, uh, and I will, let, me, let me be honest with you on this. Okay, we had a cake that I had been looking forward to having for, for months, because I knew we were going to have this cake, made by, um, made by a, the grandma of, of uh, Patrick McCune, and they have a bakery in Reading. There you go, a little plug for them. Great cake. It weighed like 17 pounds, and it has all the icing in the world right put on this cake. And I knew for months that we were getting this cake, and I, I, I'm just going to tell you what's going through my mind, okay? We were having a dessert buffet, and we had more desserts there. I was hoping there would be enough desserts so the people there would eat the other desserts and, and not this cake. And then I'm hoping when we cut this cake that the, the slices are small enough so that the people who go before me will take, I mean, that, that there's enough left for me because I can't, even though I want to as a host, I want to lead in and get the cake. I know that that would be a little bit much, so I need to let other people go first. But I'm just telling you, fear drives selfish living, because I want the cake. I know how good it is. I'm afraid that the resources will run out, and I won't get enough. And so I'm going to try to figure out how to manipulate things so I get what I want. Because fear drives selfish living. And so when you are afraid, you tend to be the most selfish. When I'm afraid... I tend to be the most selfish. And Jesus knows this. And he begins to ask him a question. And he pushes on this. And he knows this is a major teaching point. Major teaching point for him. And he goes on. Here in verse 22, he says, You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? The cup is an Old Testament metaphor for the suffering that I'm going to suffer? Can you handle the suffering that I'm going to deal with? We can, they answered. You can't, Jesus said. No, he didn't say that, but they they can't. (laughs) They can't. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup of suffering, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they thought the brothers were awesome. They were indignant with the two brothers. And I don't know, I mean, that does, that's no surprise that the other ten disciples would be like, what? James and John? What are you, are you kidding? Now, I don't know the reason for their indignation. It could have been in that moment, like you didn't even say, whoa, you're going to be crucified. Like, I hope that goes well. I mean, you didn't even say that. You were just asking for your positions in the middle of that. Or was it like, man, I should have thought of that first. Like, that could have been the indignant. I don't know what the reason for the indignancy was other than they were indignant. They were upset with what was going on. And Jesus continues here. And he says in verse 25, he called them together. He's like, guys, listen, and now it's kind of relative chaos going on. You have two people and a mom kneeling down, wanting stuff, and it's kind of crazy and silly. Then you have the disciples getting angry at the other two, and you have a moment that was supposed to be a moment 
on the walk to Jerusalem, where we just had a time to talk and just tell you, here's what's going to happen. And now it's turned into relative chaos. He calls them together and he says this, guys, come on, come on, bring it together, guys, listen up. Kind of reminds me of my coaching of the U12 soccer team I do, which is just about, that's all it is. Come on, come on, guys, stop talking, stop picking your nose and kicking each other. All right, come on, bring it, bring it together, bring it together. Verse 25, he called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's starting with what they know. Now, you know this already. He said, You know how the world works? He says, Listen, you, you know how it works. When you go to work, the boss is in charge, and the boss is in charge because he wants to make more money. And, and he's in charge of you, and your job is to do what he wants. The more that we play this game, the better off you'll be, the better off he'll be, and we'll understand that. That he's kind of for himself, and the way for you to be for yourself is to work for him. You know that they lord it over. You know that that's how it works. And he's like, come on, guys. You're smarter than this. Look at verse, verse um, 26. He says, not so with you. Instead, and this is so powerful, verses 26 to 28. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those three verses are so profound. And Jesus takes this moment with the disciples and he says, guys, you're doing Exactly what the world does. You kidding me? Let me, guys, come on, let me remind you. The reason that I'm even here is not so that we can figure out who sits on the right or the left. The Son of Man came to, be ser to, to serve, excuse me, not to be served. We, guys, listen, we use our strength, we use our power to strengthen others. The reason you're put in a position of influence and leadership is not so that you can be in the position of leadership and influence. It's so that you can use that position to strengthen the people around you. Guys, come on, not so with you. You know how it works in the world. You know that your boss moves up on top of you because he wants more money. You know that in school, you know, you have people who only have so many positions open for the team and they're not going to help you get better because they want the position. You know, you know how that works. Not so with you. You are different. You're following me. And the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. This is a categorical shift in how we live. Categorical shift in how we think about one another. It was Tim Keller who wrote in one of his books, A New Kind of Urban Christian, he said that Christianity will not be attractive enough to win influence except through sacrificial service to all people regardless of their beliefs. Christianity will not be attractive enough to win influence except through sacrificial service to all people, regardless of their beliefs. Here at GPC, we put it this way. We say, we serve our neighbor with abandon. This is our second core value. We serve our neighbor with abandon. We clarify that to say, we pour our energy into sacrificial and strategic service for the common good, 
for those who live next door and around the world. We serve our neighbor with abandon. We pour ourselves into sacrificial and strategic service for the common good for those who live next door and around the world. This is a a wire-crossing moment. In other words, instead of saying, there's only so much cake, and I've got to be sure that I get it, I've got to rewire it and say, I love that cake so much. I would love it if you had that same experience. Let me make sure that you have access to the same things that I have. How can I serve you? Here's the problem with that. If I serve you like that, I'm afraid that no one will serve me like that. If I step into that with you, I'm afraid, I am afraid, I won't get any cake. I really like that cake. And thus the struggle for the Christian, thus the struggle for the human, that service to you is a threat to my future. Because if I stop thinking about my future and think about yours, or even just pull down the throttle on my future and push it up on yours, I'm afraid that no one's going to look out for my interest and that I'm going to miss something good. Thus the struggle. And Jesus says, come on, not so with you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life a ransom for many. The question we have to follow up this core value is this question. It's one that we can reflect on. We think about service. We ask, who, where, and how am I serving? Who, where, and how am I serving? So in other words, we all will agree, I think at a 30,000 foot level, service is a good idea. There are a few people who would listen to this message and say, this is terrible. Whose idea was this? Who led him up there to speak? I mean, who wrote that in Matthew? I don't think that has anything to do with this at all. The question becomes, moving from the ideal and the theoretical down to the practical now. And you answer the question, who, where, and how am I serving? For some of you, it means serving the church. And I, I, the more I'm spending time with different ministries here at GPC, I'm just um, overwhelmed with the, the quality and strength of our volunteers. People who pull off blast, you know, there's so many stories to tell, but I'm so encouraged by, by even some of our young adults now, okay? Now, do you, I don't know if everyone remembers when they were young adults. We have young adults right now who are offering to volunteer their time to come lead a children's ministry in the middle of a week and to serve these little people down here. Not because we're paying them, not because we're helping them with tuition, but because they're saying, you know what, this is what I want to give back. I look at that, I'm like, that's awesome, right? I mean, that, that's awesome. We have other people who are serving continually behind the scenes, continually, over and over, filling in gaps where people you know, either missed it or had to be you know, on vacation for this or that, and just continue to serve quietly, regularly, over and over and over again. It's amazing to me. Who, where, and how am I serving? Not just in the church. This goes to family. This goes to work. This goes home. How am I serving my children? How am I serving my spouse? How am I serving my employees? How am I serving my boss? Now, these questions are good, but I want to give you one question. I'm going to give you one question. 
that can revolutionize the way you think about your life, the way you think about the people around you. And it's really only four words, and it's very simple, and very profound, if you'll let it be. As you think about service, if this is true, that we want to create a place here at GPC where we, we rewire ourselves, where I'm thinking not just about me getting the cake, but now about allowing others to have that kind of experience. Here's a question that to me just fundamentally changes the way I do everything, the way I think about life and ministry. And here's a question. How can I help? Okay. How can I help? Let me flesh that out a little bit. How can I help? Very simple. Very simple question. How can I help does this. It says, you know what? My role is not about me and you helping me become better at what I do. My fundamental lead-in is you have something going on. You have stuff you want to try to accomplish. You have maybe some struggles in faith or in your relationship, in your marriage, or with your children. You have stuff that is going on, and my lead into your life is this. How can I help? How can I help? There are two ways to look at this. One is reactive, and the other is proactive, and both are appropriate. There are times when you react because something is happening. And can you imagine this as an employer coming in? Um, as an employee, imagine your employer coming in and you have kind of a, just a heaviness you brought in from the weekend. There's just stuff going on. And your boss sees it. And without prompting, they see it and they come over and they're like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, okay. Hey, how can I help you this week? Can you imagine what that would do for you? If you fell off your chair first, right? Or if you stapled your hand to your desk by mistake in that moment, okay? Can you imagine what that would do if the person in authority over you asks you the question, how can I help you? How different that would feel in the office. How different that would feel where you are. Can you imagine what it would be like if you asked that question even without saying it? Because there are times when you need the question without verbalizing it. For example, parenting. Or in a marriage, take parenting at first. As a parent, what if you just thought through this question as you're coming home with your children? You, if you ask your children this question, how can I help? They may not be able to answer you. But you will know how you can help if you'll ask the question. In other words, your, your son or your daughter might not ever say to you, hey, Dad, what I need you to do is to remind me of my position before Christ. I need you to remind me that I'm made in God's image and that he has awareness of my life and that I'm not floating here alone, unknown, and insecure in all of my struggles. Right? Has any kid ever said that to any parent in the history of humanity? But has every kid ever struggled with that? Yes. And so if a parent leads into their week and says, man... How can I help? It changes everything about the way you function at home. It changes everything about the way that you parent and the way that you lead. And imagine the same in your marriage. If you come home from work and your spouse is at home, instead of coming home with the, the worries of work, which I know are appropriate to deal with in some measure, but you come home and your first thought when you walk in the door is, how can I help? How can I help? I may not even say it, 
but I'm just going to think it. And it might be wise to ask it, but it might be wise just to do that. You're at home and your spouse is coming back from work and you know they're overloaded. And you ask and think the same question to them. This is the biblical concept of outdoing one another with honor. Giving honor and precedent to one another. Almost fighting about, how can I help you? No, it's my turn to help you. How can I help you? How can I help you? And can you imagine what it would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like if we had a church that led into our community in the same way? How can I help? How can I serve? Without thought of me getting the cake for myself ever, how can I help? I can almost guarantee you that the person that you thought about at the beginning of this message, who is the person who's been one of the key influencers and leaders in your life, has asked that same question. And has answered it by saying, you know how I can help? I can help by saying something to you. By stepping into your life. By serving you in some way. Can you imagine the difference it would make? If we are part of a community that was turned upside down with leaders and influencers who were not there for their own benefit, who sat there around Jesus' feet on his walk to Jerusalem and realized, here's the Messiah who's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, to be flogged, to be sentenced to death. And the third day he'll rise again. But he's going there because he came to serve my needs. He didn't want to. Let's be honest. He prayed, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not yours, but not mine, but your will be done. But he went there. Can you imagine what it would be like to be people who would serve one another with that kind of abandon? Can you imagine what it would be like in your school, at work, at home, to live with somebody and to be somebody who with abandon strategically and sacrificially served those around them. An amazing picture of what could be, but a very, very difficult thing to do if we live in fear. This is why we live fearlessly, forgive generously, and speak openly is so important. Jesus set this model to follow, an amazing model to follow, of what it looks like to step forward, to walk, and to serve one another with abandon. And let me encourage you, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in right now, what about it? What about the question, how can I help? Kids, I'm guaranteeing you, if you ask that to your parents, they would hit the floor. Parents, if we ask that to our children, what would they do? Spouses. What would your spouse say? If you as an employee came in and talked to your employer and said, you know what? How can I help? And vice versa. This is where the movement of our community is going now. Where our interests are to help and to serve. It's sometimes in ways that people don't even know they need help yet. 
but to serve strategically and sacrificially for the common good of those who live next door and around the world. If you are raising a family at Grace Point Church, if you are living in this community and you're going to grow old with us, this is the kind of culture that we want to create here. A culture of people who understand service as strategic and sacrificial because this is a Savior that we follow. Let's pray. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning and to see the model of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I pray that you would help us here at Grace Point as we try to walk on this journey of becoming more and more present in the town square and of developing fully devoted followers of Christ. That as we do that, Father, may our spirit and our heart be that which reflects this teaching of Jesus on his way to his own death. This is what we do as followers of Christ. We use our strength to serve others. We serve sacrificially and strategically for the common good of those who live next door and around the world. Because this is the model that our Savior has shown. Give us courage to ask and answer the question, how can I help? To think of who, where, and how we are serving. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do, no matter what comes. We thank you, Father, that in this we can trust you, we can give our fears to you, that you are a strong and loving and caring God who will carry us even when we think that we're going to run out of resources or energy, that you are a God who is full of compassion, full of mercy, that you represent all that there is to love everlasting. We thank you for your love and your care for us. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.